Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the fine folks at Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia, from which all of these panels were recorded at Metatopia 2017. It's also thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 138, Professionalization, How Can Gaming Grow Up? Presented by Michelle Lyons, McFarland, and Jason Pitt. If you all wish to move up, <laughs> it Please looks like there's not many forward. of us. Do I need to speak? This is a more of a cozy affair. Do I need to speak into that? Or um, is this fine? Or uh, do you, you care? You, you can. It, it, I don't it really want to. It doesn't amplify, but... That's it, fine. It, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's fine. Okay, I'm good where I am. Yeah, it should... Yeah, I mean, it's recording off of here, I believe. Oh, so. well, then what am I worried it, about? Yeah. Okay. It should be fine, but echo... All right. That was very exciting. <clears throat> so... This is the panel called Professionalization, How Can Gaming Grow Up? I am Michelle Lyons McFarland. I am co-owner of Growling Door Games. Um, I've worked in the industry since 2000, working in-house and freelance for a number of different companies, including Facicorp and Wizards of the Coast. Um, yeah. What else are, do you have to have as a title? What do you mean? Oh, and I'm the president of the IGDN, which is the Indie Game Designers Association. I apologize. It has been a very busy day. Hi. Yes. Uh, my name is Jason Pitt <laughs> from Just Sub Legend Publishing. Uh, I'm one of the other um, longtime members of the Indie Game Developer Network. I also run the RPG Design Panelcast which is going to be releasing an audio recording of this panel later on. So if anyone has any issues, let us know, and I can edit and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, that's a thing. So why don't you take the lead, El Presidente? I will. Jason is the best radio announcer voice. Don't you guys think so? It's like super Canadian radio announcer voice. I love that. I'm sorry, eh? <laughs> um, so... One of the things that has been kind of around for a while, and one of my, my special things that I'm trying to work towards as the president of the IGDN, is figuring out, oh yes, please, close the door, thank you, um, is figuring out how can gaming move towards professionalization, right? And by professionalization, I mean Treating it, no, this is going to sound weird, but treating it like a business, treating it like a profession, um, so that there's some ethical standards, some standards of uh, behavior, some standards of contract business. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this is hard. Um, <clears throat> one of the problems with our industry slash hobby slash pastime um, is that it does fall into that sort of liminal part-time interest 
space. There aren't that many people who are in it full time uh, as their main career just because of the limitations of well, economics. economics. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the change of the industry so much since the turn of the century, which feels like a weird phrase to say still, but still. Turn of the millennium. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, when I started out, I started out in-house full-time as an editor at Bassacorp. And while I can't say that there were a ton of people in the industry with full-time jobs, mm. there were quite a few, right? I mean, enough that it was a respectable showing at Gen Con that many of the people that you would meet were working full-time in the industry. Um, that is not the case. It is starting to build back up a little bit. And even then there were part-timers, but, but it was much easier, right? Um, in the years since then, the almost 20 years since then, it's become a much more part-time thing. It's kind of rebuilding from the ground up. We no longer have people who were publishers getting into the gaming industry. Now we have game designers getting into the publishing industry. Um, and that flip has meant that in a lot of ways we're kind of rediscovering what it means to be an industry because we, we lost a lot of that institutional knowledge and now we're reinventing it for a new a new take, kind of a new structure. Yeah, I mean, in broad strokes, like, I was ballparking, we probably have, what, 75 people full-time doing, like, the de heavy design publishing, writing end of things? Industry-wide? Industry-wide. Like, uh, sounds... within role-playing games. Right, within role-playing games. Board games are much bigger. They've yeah, got, they a, actually have people. That's a different thing. But, but, but for role-playing games, yeah, maybe. And half that's positive. A goodly portion of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of us, right, that, that are doing this while we do other things. And one of the side effects of that is that now... The way that we treat our hobbies and the way that we treat our professions are different, right? Um, we have a lot of people who are coming into this as a hobby or interest um, versus having come at it as this is my business and this is, you know, I have business relationships with everyone. We're coming at it as I have friends who do this and this is my community and now I want to turn that into a business relationship. And so one of the big questions that, that I'm struggling with, and I think a lot of us are struggling with, is how do we engage in professionalization in a way that won't strip out the heart of the industry, but will give us scaffolding to move forward and create something that's sustainable? Yeah, so in broad strokes, I see there's two sort of aspects to this. What are the responsibilities of professionals in the industry, whatever that actually means, and how should the industry itself be supporting and encouraging those professionals? Like, for instance, for most you know professions, you'll get things like health insurance along with. You'll have um, reasonable legal services. You'll have, um, like there's a wide variety of different things that if we were accountants, we would all have access to through one means or another. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the industry itself isn't providing us, 
because we aren't there yet. And we, the, that's a conversation that we're going to have to talk about at some point. But, I mean, the first half is um, the most important, which is what are our responsibilities as professionals um, in order to, for that to be a reasonable thing? I think that that's entirely reasonable. And I think that, that, so I would list primary among that is developing a sort of ethical standard, developing standards in generally, but in general, but specifically ethical standards. Um, so that we, we have best practices for how to engage in contracts. We've got best practices for what we deliver to our customers. We've got best practices for how we get our product to market, um, what we expect from distributors, what they can expect from us, um, and developing a list of those best practices that people can attempt to adhere to. Now we're starting, so not everybody's gonna get there all the time. I don't, I don't want this to be punitive, right? I think that you can't get people on board if it's always punitive, but I think it's things to aspire to. And if we can build up that kind of basis of people who are attempting to engage in best practices, that that will spread and be attractive to people and be attractive to customers and build this sort of like expectation of what everybody is going to get. Like I'm going to get a product and I'm going to get people. And that means though that we also have to start kind of regulating communication, right? Yeah, so, I mean, beautiful example. So what's the standard on delivering a Kickstarter? <laughs> what, when, when, when do customers expect to receive a Kickstarter product after, they ha after it is completed? Is it the anticipated delivery date? Is it six months after that? Is it two years after we stop communicating with our backers? I mean, we've got a pretty wide range in the industry right now. And is it just a thing that hasn't been finalized hasn't been figured out so it's just ambiguous it is and as people in the industry we don't talk about that of course not i mean we it's talk about terrifying. it like oh i hear that's going i hear that you're still working on that yeah i'm still working on that that's you know keep at it and that's the end of the conversation right because we don't want to pile on each other but neither do we want to get stuck in the mud of of someone else's Kickstarter that's going badly, right? We've got enough of our own stuff to do. And, and I, we can all name some of the ones where they're deeply stuck in the mud. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that, that's a bad look on the industry, honestly. That, the fact that there are those kinds of projects kicking around. And it would be nice if we had a way to offer assistance right like i can't do all of this for you i'm not going to purchase this project from you but i can tell that you're having a problem here what can you know how can we support you what do you need in order to get this done right can we work out an equitable situation that lets you finish the thing you started but we don't we don't have that kind of structure yet I mean, it's one of the things that I want to do with the IGDN is I want to allow the companies that are in it, you know, as a trade organization to help with that structure. It'd be really nice if that structure was in Gamma because Gamma has a lot more, you know, does everyone know what Gamma is? Uh, gamma, help me remember. 
Game, uh, game Manufacturers Game Manufacturers Associ- Association. Yeah, the first A doesn't really stand for anything. <laughs> it's GA for game. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, um, so they're ostensibly the trade organization. They um, primarily work with both manufacturers and retailers, so they're trying to bridge that gap. Um, they host both Origins, um, they're the owner of Origins Game Fair, and uh, the Gamma Trade Show, or GTS, uh, that has historically taken place in Vegas in March, but uh, is moving to Reno in the upcoming year. And the Gamma Trade Show, unlike Origins, which is public-facing, um, and it's a standard convention, uh, GTS is designed to be a place where manufacturers and retailers meet together. So you can show off your product to retailers and they can place orders and pick it up. The public is not allowed in. Uh, They've got a lot of seminars that tend to be retail focused. Um, So they're encouraging people who own stores to come and attend and and kind of get a feel for what the industry is and what they can do with it and how to make money off of it. Um, And that's a lot of the focus of Gamma. I think that Gamma has kind of not always moved forward in terms of how the manufacturer side has changed. You will not find a lot of indie companies in Gamma. You'll find some, but not a lot. Um, They're mostly for when you have like full game lines and you're in distribution and you're working with retailers. They don't really have something set up for when that's not you yet. And yet at this point with things like drive-through RPG, Amazon. Yeah, the barriers haven't been lower. I mean, it's absurdly easy to get in, and we don't have any support for the people who are just getting in beyond yeah. things like the IGDN. And I think that that's a lot of the place that we can start to work with ideas of professionalization with the new companies, you know, who are just trying to learn the business from the ground up. So, yeah, what do we want to teach them, Jason? Well. <laughs> What's your number one thing you would teach everyone? Uh, well, okay. My number one has to be that we need to create an industry that is not, uh, that uh, disavows sexism and racism. That would be my number one and number two. Once we have the standard of basic human decency in place, uh, I would probably be saying things along the lines of uh, when deal, when involving contractors, you need to have contracts that are followed that include fair rates, and those fair rates must be paid. There, there's always a handful of companies that we just don't talk about that have not paid their freelancers. Uh, Sometimes it's payment on publication and four years pass, so someone's written 40,000 words and hasn't gotten paid for it. Sometimes uh, books have been published and just uh, those freelancer checks just never quite materialize. And because everyone in the industry is afraid of being litigated to death, no one talks about them. And 
everyone hates the idea of ostracism, so we just let these corporate broken stairs just lie there, tripping people. And that's a problem. You know, it's interesting. If we combine the, the five social fallacies with our industry, how the overlap goes, right? So we, we want everyone to be included because we don't want to be excluded. So we don't ever exclude anyone. Um, we want, we, we feel like we are, uh, I don't know, the, Greek, the social fallacy is like we feel like we were bullied so we don't want to bully anyone else or, or like deal with their practices if we don't agree with them. Um, but what this results in is this sort of culture of silence where everybody works through a sort of whisper network. Although it's not just about sexism, it's about, oh, they won't pay you. Oh, I tried to work for them and they screwed around for 18 months and never got me a contract. Oh, you know, I had a book with them and then they left my name off of it. You know, these are the stories that we tell each other in the bar, but we don't have a way to make these things more widely known. And the funny thing is, like you were saying about being afraid of being litigated against, no one has any money Except to litigate. Except the people who are big enough and have enough money by not paying their freelancers to afford lawyers. Well, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big problem. The stakes are low enough that people are willing to take crazy legal risks, but the egos are large enough that people will be vindictive even if there's no actual economic benefit to it. So it's just... Um, and can I follow up on that? <laughs> Let, we'll have a conversation at the bar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so if you are drinking heavily then you haven't gotten those warnings. Uh, you also haven't gotten those freelance jobs. You haven't heard about those fun projects because the um, culture of alcohol in our industry is uh, pre prevalent, is a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, enthusiastic. You know, I hadn't thought about that until this weekend um, when, when we had kind of discussed uh, a little bit in advance but it's really true I mean when I was starting out as a freelancer I was told to go to Origins and go to Big Bar on 2 which is the bar kind of in the same convention center um, and connected to the Hyatt where a lot of the industry people stay because it was on site and buy someone a beer because that was how you met someone Right? You go up, you say, I really like your stuff. Can I buy you a beer? And then you start to talking, and then you could get some work, maybe. There was nothing about, oh, you should take them out to dinner, or you should meet them for coffee, or whatever, because since this is an entertainment hobby, we tend to associate it with, with recreation, and recreation often involves alcohol. Right? But that becomes a problem when you're trying to create a more egalitarian kind of industry and have, have those sorts of standards because not everyone is comfortable going to a bar and drinking for all hours to try and like schmooze and get to know somebody. They want it, you know, we need to have opportunities that don't involve doing that. And there's so many different angles where it's an issue. Uh, 
one, you get a whole bunch of business being done while people are intoxicated. Yeah. Uh, two, you get um, a industry which, well, thank you very much, Jessica Price, for that Twitter thread because that does a. You can just look that up um, on exactly how um, hostile it makes it from uh, in terms of. Um, uh, the women that are not feeling welcome or safe in that kind of environment. Uh, there's the fact that, hi, um, so how much can you afford for your bar bill as a young professional who's trying to get a job that will be paying you two cents a word? <laughs> um, so it's a lot of you're spending money on buying someone a beer so they can give you a job that best case scenario will pay you back the cost of the beer a couple times well and there's also the risk too that the person might not remember what job they gave you i had that happen to me once oh. <laughs> where i'm like i didn't realize i was speaking with justin achille who is famous within the industry for how much he would drink at these sorts of things. He doesn't do this anymore. Um, he, he's quit doing that. But there was a period in which uh, he did that and I was looking for work and I went up and talked to him and I didn't realize how drunk he already was. And we discussed a job and I'm like, great, I'll follow up. And I did and I emailed him and he's like, I don't really remember that conversation but it sounds good, so okay. I'm like, all right then. That's exciting. So. I mean, at least that is the more professional response of, I have been irresponsible, so I will accept whatever you just said <laughs> as being true, yes. because I drank far too much. So, but, uh, but yeah, that's it. The, the alcohol-centric element of the culture is a problem, in my opinion. Well, and we're not we're far from the only industry that, you know, uses alcohol as its, as its social, social lubricant. and yeah. networking lubricant. Uh, but but because so much of our work is at conventions and conferences that are public facing, um, and it's not just a question of going to a hotel with other people in the industry and hanging out kind of like we are here, you know, it's a question of going to Gen Con in front of 70,000 fans um, and having that kind of, of alcohol issue. You know, we... We're not just in a market for adults, we're in a market for kids too. And I don't wanna tell people not to drink because you know there might be kids around because I don't think that that's really the problem. It's just that when you combine conference drinking and social networking with a venue that's supposed to be family friendly, eventually these two things are going to clash, right? Oh yeah. And it's not saying that you couldn't have alcohol at that, but you have to be able to divide it and you have to be able to kind of tell where it is and drinking and other sorts of things are not really good for that, right? They, they cause you to weaken your boundaries, not strengthen them. Yeah. So when you have to have them, that's a problem. So moving on from that, um, I'm looking at what some other organizations and professions are doing. Uh, which uh, can be helpful guides. Specifically, CIPWA, uh, Science Fiction Writers of America. They have very clear guidelines of what a qualifying market is. In order uh, to be a publisher of professional grade, 
uh, you need to be paying your writers uh, currently, I believe it is six cents a word minimum. We do not have a rule set up in our industry on that. And there was an old post from, I believe it was 2014, that broke down the pay rates for a new writer for all the various companies. The top end of it, I think it topped out at eight cents a word. The bottom uh, one was, I believe, a tenth of a cent. Yeah. I mean, Wizards, when I was working there in the early 2000s, was paying eight to 10 cents a word, 10 if you were, if you had worked for them before, right? So you could get up to that. You started at eight and you worked your way up. Nobody was paying more than that. And I don't think they've raised their rates since the early 2000s. Yeah, I don't think so. So, so we're dealing with a heavily underpaid industry when it comes to writers, when it comes to artists. And part of that is because we still haven't figured out how to make a ton of money in RPGs. Now, board games and card games are a little bit better, right. but I, I don't know that the pay rates have are significantly different. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Um, all I know is the writing pay rate. I'm sorry, we should be uh, paying RPG writers at the same level that fiction writers are being paid. These are people who write words. <laughs> this is not a radically different profession we're talking about. Oh. Um, and the amount that fiction writers are being paid is very low and insufficient. So let's at least reach that very low and insufficient minimum within our industry. Um, so for instance, my company is super indie. I mean, we've got a handful of products. Yeah, you're really Yeah, indie. We, we, I'm, I'm definitely in the indie creator-owned space. My minimum pay rates are six cents a word. And I very I push up based on um, technical, technical expertise and uh, representation from marginalized communities as high in some cases as 20 cents a word. Wow. Very small pieces. I limit yeah. the scope of the work I'm hiring for so I can afford it. But if I can do it, it's feasible. It's possible. Um, also, uh, yeah, so uh, 500 words. 20 cents a word. That's 100 bucks. Yeah, it's not terrible. Yeah, 100 bucks is, in reason, is not terrible. I can do that to 10 people. I can pay 1,000 bucks for a writer, for a set of 10 different writers, and pay them decently. That's not, it, like, it's not rocket surgery. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, this is doable. <laughs> so, Growling Door pays uh, five cents a word for first writers, six cents a word for repeat, uh, if we work with you more than once, um, which doesn't take that much. Um, we have retainers for both our accountant and our layout person because we don't actually have a layout person on staff. Um, and we're looking at putting one of our artists on retainer. Uh, she does a lot of, um, oh, like little character sketch, right? Like not full body, but just like this size, you know, quarter page. Uh, for us on character sheets and stuff, and we do a lot of releases of pre-gen characters and uh, and 
adventures right for the games that we put out for free uh, for our customers so we're paying a hundred dollars a month regardless of whether we ask them to do anything and then that covers them doing small stuff for us so if we need a banner if we need something like that if we need a quick character sketch um, they can do that and then for larger work we recontract right our we don't a lot of people don't use the retainer model for contract work, um, but it has a lot to recommend it. Just because you know the account works on retainer all the time for her, that's not a big deal. Um, but we tend to work on contract and then not ever go back to it. But working on retainer allows you to develop a relationship with somebody who's done good work for you, gives them a small amount of reliable income, right? Which it may not be much, but that $100 a month that you know you're gonna get is a big deal when you work from contract to contract. And then recontracting for big deals so you're not stuck at, oh, well, I've already paid you $1,100 this year regardless of whatever you've done. You know, you can then, they can fit it into their schedule, they can see what they really need to charge for it above and beyond whatever we've already worked with. Um, and then we can build that kind of relationship so that one of these days, if we make enough money and we could actually hire them in full time, that would be fantastic. But in the meantime, we're creating a fair pay sort of basis for our relationship with them. Um, and it's resulted in a lot of good relationships, good loyalty, uh, consistent performance, people who meet their deadlines. It's been really good. So I would like to see payment arrangements like that like proliferate a little bit more throughout the industry. The other thing, the other thing that we can do is focus on treating people's um, IP rights respectfully. Uh, so pretty much whenever I hire anyone to create things, I ask for a permanent license to use uh, their work. They retain all ownership. I just want to, you know, have blanket Cal Blanche. I can use this illustration for whatever I needed to, uh, to do. But they can resell it. They can repurpose it. That it's theirs. And this way, we're leaving residual income streams for our hardworking contractors. Um, we get what we need for our purposes without starving the artist for no good reason. And there's so many legacy IPs where hardworking creators, artists, illustrators get the short end of the stick and don't get access to their own creative works. And, you know. 50 years later, Marvel owns it, Disney owns their IP, and they got a hundred bucks and a pack of chewing gum. <laughs> like that, that, yeah, we, we need to emphatically move away from things like, um, uh, what's the, what's the proper name for that? The, the kinds of contracts. Work for hire? Uh, work for hire, yes. Now, there are times when you don't have an option about work for hire. For instance, uh, one of the things that I'm doing is Chill Third Edition, which is an IP that we have licensed 
as a company from the IP holder. Um, a gentleman named Martin Carone, who's in Canada, who loved the IP, doesn't want to publish on his own, has no interest in it. So we retained the English publication rights for the chill IP, right? I don't have the option of deciding to like pay royalties to the authors or whatever because whatever they write for that game belongs to that IP, which is not mine to you know deal with. I have to maintain the owner's IP rights. But what I can do is with the art, when we contract art for it, uh, we pay for publication rights, we call out advertising rights, um, we arrange put in a, a thing in the contract that says if we're going to use this in a future product we have to go back and renegotiate so that they continue to get that income stream and don't just have their art spread all over everything um, we make it clear for individuals who write for that property that that material is going to then be part of that property so don't you don't put in anything you're not willing to give up um, but at the same time if you want to you know do some other stuff for us or whatever that's fine too so we distinguish and we make sure that they're aware of what the situation is and we try and pay you know when we can we try and pay a little more for having to work work for hire as opposed to having getting something that they can still retain the rights to um, or that they can build their own rights off of that's kind of how that goes yeah completely do we want to take questions Absolutely. I Does anyone have questions. any questions? Or discussion. I'm a member of CISPA on the fiction writing side, and there is, they have, I enthusiastically voted for allowing game writers to be members. Um, the, if it's something you've done, it's definitely worth looking into. The qualifications are a little bit yeah. steep. I definitely looked at it, and the amount of words I've written don't qualify me as on the game writing side because it's scattered through a bunch of I know there's one really useful thing that SIFWA does that we don't do. Griefcom. Their grievance committee, uh, which does things like, say, one of those missing corporate stairs that doesn't pay people, they will follow up. There will be discussions. Freelancers will wind up getting paid in some cases. I, I, I hope it's many cases, uh, but I don't know what's happening on that side. I, all I know is things happen. Mm -hmm. That's glorious. Yeah, that would be really valuable to the industry as a whole. Because I don't think anybody necessarily sets out to do business badly. I mean, okay. There are probably some people who set out to do business badly, but I think that the majority of people get in over their head because we tend to be panicky. And so if you're starting a business and you don't know what you're doing and you suddenly have this bill that you need to pay and you needed to pay your freelancers, but they're not as urgent as this thing that's just come in and that keeps rolling. Right? And suddenly you're six months past due on paying your freelancers. You've got a printer breathing down your neck. You've got 500 copies that you still don't know how you're going to move. And somebody else wants something from you. And they're asking about the next game that you're supposed to be working on. And that kind of pressure when you've got a new business owner, given that most new businesses don't make it anyway, um, 
can easily lead one into bad business decisions that then impact other people. So I think that that is actually the most common scenario uh, for things in this things going badly. And I think that having an industry group that can check in and go, hey, do you realize you haven't paid your freelancers? Do you realize that we're going to publish that you haven't paid your freelancers? You know, gives people a chance to go, oh, I should be paying my freelancers. And then kind of find a way to correct and get back to norm, right? So I would really like to see that come about. Um, we should get on that, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> um, It's a trade organization. Yeah, SIFWA yeah, is a trade organization for the reporting. I mean, because no, no. I'm not a business person other than in a very amateur way. But my sense is that screenwriters, for I really wish that was the solution. I think one of the problems with moving toward a union is that a union works best when it has a management and a corporate structure to work against, right? Which works for screenwriters because you're working for movie companies, you're working for production companies, that kind of thing. There's so much independently owned within this industry that there's really no nowhere to push against as a union. I mean, you might be a freelancer who's working for a company Right? A freelancer union might work, but it's really hard to say because even the dues might be more, <laughs> because there's so little money floating around in the industry that I don't know if there's enough to gain traction to make that union in the first place. There have been a couple of very abortive attempts since I got into the industry uh, to kind of do that, and they never really got past the, we're going to have a mailing list stage. So I don't know if that's actually where we need to go. I think it would be better in the long run to have the manufacturers and the publishers kind of step up for themselves, right? And say, this is how I'm going to make a good business. This is how I'm going to make a profit with ethical choices, right? Because you can make a profit with ethical choices. People actually, especially because the barrier between consumer and publisher has grown so thin, right? It's no longer a case of, I go to my store and get this book and I don't know anything about anybody who makes it. I just know it appears on my store owner's shelf, right? Now you're going to drive through RPG, which is like one step removed from the publisher who just uploaded that PDF. Right? Distributors have moved more and more out of the picture. There's fewer and fewer middlemen. And you can email or find your guy on Facebook or find your woman who publishes on Twitter. Right? You don't have that kind of buffer the way that you used to. And that means that the choices that you make and the way that you run your business, if it becomes known, can either be a detriment or can work in your favor because people like to support things that help other people. So what I'm hearing here is that there's a, a lot of understanding of what the kinds of issues are and the problems in the industry. And I just, I'm just sort of thinking off the top of my head, would it make an interesting class project at the Wharton Business School or at Stanford Business School for somebody from this class to look into this 
industry, you know, the sort of tabletop gaming industry or whatever, with some goals that have been defined by maybe the IBGN or whatever sort of consortial group there is, to try to get a handle on sort of how you get from where we are now to this state where we would like to be. Right. You know, um, those guys have the business experience. Maybe you guys do too, but I right. think a lot of us are sort of amateurs. Oh, oh absolutely. And yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that we should absolutely be looking in. Um, but here's the question: Who's going to pay for and arrange for that study? We're so decentralized that we we need people to be trying to take leadership on things, but we're we're all overworked volunteers. So. It makes a difference when it can be your day job. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm not trying. Oh, oh, yeah, no, 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 no. We didn't take it that way. It, we wish that it that we had more central guidance and support and resources to be able to do things like this because it's needed. But we're all small fry. We're small fry with the exception of like two, three companies. One of the small, very promising steps um, in terms of improving matters is specifically Evil Hat's radical transparency. The fact that they're giving their sales numbers, and they have been historically sharing all their sales numbers, how much they're paying their freelancers, like a huge amount of information. Just sharing that with the industry has helped a great deal. Um, and, you know, thank you, Fred. I think, honestly, setting up standards and practices, it's worked in some other industries. And even if all we did was we had a website that said, here is the current uh, minimum standard of X amount for this quantity. Um, the following organizations have met this minimum standard. This is the gold standard. You know, if you're paying people 10 cents a word, that's your gold standard. You, you're you on this elevated list. Have prestige. Just something forward-facing public yeah. would be useful. Just so at least people have a reference point. Yep. I'd be on board with that. Yeah. Let's work that. Yeah, we should Woo. work that. <laughs> um, other thoughts or questions or comments? Well, let's see. Are there any other things we need to ramble on about? Um, um, we've covered legal bits to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, answer your emails. Yeah, answer your emails <laughs> is kind of kind of fantastic. I mean, um, it would be great if we could find a way. And I don't think we can actually do this. I don't think it's feasible to find a way to decouple like your business anxiety from your personal anxiety so that when you start getting anxious, you don't stop answering emails and communicating because that's actually how you get out of the situation that you're in. Um, but again, a lot of people are coming at this from this is my hobby. And so when my hobby starts causing me anxiety, I don't know what to do with it. Um, as opposed to, this is my business, I always need to answer my business emails. 
so that's but that goes back to like how are you in this industry what are you actually doing you know can you start to view this as a business uh, where you're working with yours and someone else's money at stake so I guess we'll just have to work on that and see if we can get there yeah and there's a lot of potential and a lot of danger along with the fact that the barriers of entry are so low it's fantastic we have so many new voices it's also me we have so many new voices um, there's so much opportunity for fantastic people who dive in and treat people with respect who are enthusiastic passionate inclusive and welcoming and then you get people who are uh, working for the love uh, so uh, they'll work for free when uh, um, the freelancers are desperately trying to make their two cents a word um, you'll get people who think oh we don't need contracts or it's just for fun or it's just for exposure just because we're so driven on passion and there's no barriers whatsoever other than being able to run a compelling Kickstarter yeah um, so, yeah. I think education, honestly, is the most useful thing we can do. Yeah. Just help educate people to know what some of the ground rules are. So, when you run into new people, or people who seem uh, like they don't know what they're doing yet, and are casting about for advice, uh, you know, ask them about best practices. Ask them who they know in the industry and who they've talked to. Uh, try and, and help them network with people who can give them advice and maybe in the next year we can get up a best practices sort of education site for the world and, uh, and see if we can get some people on board with that. Here's hoping. Yes. Um, honestly, uh, the Evil Hat blog yeah, is e one of the, the big Evil ones. Hat blog, um, uh, the IGDN. Yeah, the IGDN. Indie Game Developer Network. Um, I will selfishly point people at my podcast, the RPG yeah. Design Panelcast, because it covers 125 of these so far. We're probably going to be at around 150 by the time the listeners hear this episode. Um, so, yeah. So there are some, they're scattered. Uh, we need to work on making them more accessible. Yeah. Any other comments, questions? What was the name of that podcast? Oh, uh, RPG Design Panelcast. We're pretty much just broadcasting all the Metatopia seminars uh, throughout the weekend. So. But that's a lot of good information. Yeah. <laughs> Several weeks of it, actually, at this yeah. point. It's actually terrifying. All right. All right. Uh, thank you all. Thank you for very coming much. and listening to us, you know, talk together for, <laughs> for an hour. Um, all right. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your Metatopia. Thank you. Happy Metatopia.